Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Stick to Wrestling. My name is John McAdam, and thank you for tuning in. If you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. I thought this week's episode was really good. I thought last week's episode was really good. And they could have been better because I wish I had thought of this. Vince McMahon appeared on the Larry King show the Friday before Donahue aired. And it was a completely different Vince McMahon, very argumentative, very just denying everything uh, defiantly. Uh, You can see that on YouTube if you're interested in hearing it or seeing it, but you just won't get commentary from Thomas Bain and I. So with that, let's get rolling with part two of The Wrestlers and Vince McMahon on The Phil Donahue Show from 1992. The thing of it is, why not speak up? If if I saw something like that, I'd call the authorities. That's what you would do. Well, you, a 10-year-old boy, you'd you call the authorities. Come on. You're not going to let somebody like that get away with that. Please, you know why? You know why? Why, why, why didn't you? Why didn't you speak up? Why didn't you speak up when you allowed when you allowed Dr. George Zahorian to sell barbiturates that kill almost killed Rick McGraw? They were in his bloodstream when he died, uh, yeah. along with all yeah. the. Uh, Billy, we're all smarter now about steroids. But wait a minute. Barbitin oh, yeah. steroids plus hardcore drugs that I had three overdoses with myself yeah. from Dr. Zahorian's um, drugs. And I tell you one thing, if my wife would have had a gun, she flushed half the drugs down the toilet. And if my wife sitting right there would have had a gun, she would have killed Dr. Zahorian. And she said if she would have had a chance, she would have killed this with man yeah. because he permitted yeah. it to but, happen. Yeah, but you took him too, didn't you? I was addicted because of the accessibility. Yeah. Well, you must have been a real crank when you were on him, too, weren't you? I mean, weren't you? I mean, doesn't it affect your personality? Well, I don't want to put words in your mouth. You're, you're addicted. You're uh, addicted. To but you're also crabby and easy to anger, aren't you? Doesn't it alter behavior and emotional? And... Not, not, not if you're sedated. Not, not if you have barbiturates and you have you, Could you compete and survive and be a top card person in the 80s in the wrestling game without taking steroids? Be no, honest. no, not you. You have to take steroids to to to, to, to in this man's World Wrestling Federation to be on top to because maintain. it made you bigger. Because, you look better in the poster. And that's the and market. You, that, that's and the we'll market. be back in just a moment. Okay, wow, Vince. Right, right after we went to break and we were talking about superstar Billy Graham. I mean, Vince turned it right around on Graham. That is an excellent question. If this is something you personally witnessed, why did you not call the authorities? And Billy Graham sadly retorts, what about the drugs? Yeah. So there, there's Billy's answer. He, he, he brings up, he name drops Rick McGraw in here. And well, while McGraw essentially died of a drug-induced heart attack or just had so many drugs and passed away, I, I believe. You read in Bret Hart's book that, you know, it wasn't as if, Zahorian and Vince McMahon were twisting Rick's arm to do this stuff. He Rick had a lot of problems. So that, that seems to be just Billy Graham's scapegoating to try to cover his ass about the, the remark Vince McMahon made at him. Oh, he was definitely trying to change the subject. And, you know, people talk about like 80s and 90s wrestlers. Oh, this guy, was this guy on steroids? I'm pretty sure that guy was on steroids. I don't know about that guy. In my opinion, or... 
how do I put this? My assessment is that the only guys in the business right around this time who were not using steroids were Dusty Rhodes and One Man Gang. That's it. Everyone else had some sort of pharmacological help. And one of the guys that you might not believe would be on steroids, I'm not going to mention his name, but he was a big time wrestler in the WWF. And I personally know the guy, he, when he quit the WWF, he sold uh, like whatever was left of his cycle to this wrestler I know. So it's, it's someone, it's not the first steroid guy you would ever think of, but I mean, clearly he was using, I mean, he, he sold them. I appreciate you not mentioning King Kong Bundy's name like that, John, and not dragging <laughs> it in the mud, is it? But, but yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those things where when you look at a guy, and I'm not going to mention any names, obviously, but a guy who would be considered by, you know, any stretch of the 1980s WWF as a light heavyweight was still, you know, five feet, 11, 230 pounds walking down the street. And I'm sure that those individuals walking around weighs probably 30 to 40 pounds less than that in a normal circumstance. So yep. even though they didn't look like the warlord, they didn't look like Hulk Hogan or the ultimate warrior. You know, there were a lot of guys that were on it, most certainly. And by the way, Bundy was out of the business at this point. He was taking a break. He had been out since like 87, I think. It didn't come back until like 95. But anyway, one other quick thing I wanted to get note is when this segment first started, I was like, wow, my buddies Dave Meltzer and John Arezzi are on national television. This is kind of cool. Let's continue with the Phil Donahue show from 1992. Bruno San Martino, you did appear on the Larry King uh, live program uh, last week. Are you impressed with Mr. McMahon's apparent uh, acknowledgement here on this program, which was not forthcoming on that one, that maybe there is a problem? Some of these poor folks out there are sitting there listening to these guys, and when he makes them, they even applaud. Poor people, you don't know this man. Let me explain something to you. I, reti- I, was, I wrestled from 1959 to 81, and I retired. When I came back in 84, Chicago commentator, believe you me, the world of wrestling that I left and the one that I found, it was bizarre. I mean, it was filled with drugs of all kinds. We're talking about steroids, but there was cocaine. In fact, this man who pretends like he wasn't aware, why didn't somebody come to me? One time I had to go to Arizona, to New Mexico, a different place because one of his druggies was, was, was out of it. And I took his place, even though I really didn't care to at that stage of my life because I had retired. I specifically said to the man, hey, if I'm going to be going to this place in the arena, says I want to make sure that I don't drive with any of your wrestlers that are full of coke and whatever. So he arranged for this other old-time wrestler, Jay Strongbow, for me to travel with him because I wouldn't be in the car because I was always afraid of a car being stopped full of drugs. And he said to me, don't worry, he says, I'll get the uh, agent to rent the car so you can go around with him. Well, let me just say this in behalf of uh, Mr. McMahon. First of all, uh, all these charges are yet to be proven. <laughs> they're just coming up. Uh, and if just, I want to get to this, uh, B- Bruno. Why? Well, yeah, that's another thing. Why are they just now coming up? Let's understand this. You I, I get... can answer that question. What is it? Um, there's never been a forum for them before. Uh, if you, you have to understand that the um, wrestling business has always been a totally closed entity. It's like almost like an elementary school. You don't snitch. You don't tell. If something happens in the business, yeah. there was a friend of mine, okay, and it has nothing to do with Vince McMahon. I don't want anyone to think it does who was murdered in a dressing room. And it was very difficult. This was in Puerto Rico. 
And it was very difficult for the wrestlers, even in the murder, to go to the police the next day and tell the truth. It took one of the guys who was a friend of the guys, says, we've got to go tell the truth. And there was so much pressure right. on telling that, you know, that you don't snitch. I get it. But I, this, has to be, this point has to be made. This, these are men in groups. Sure Not is. unlike the New York Mets. That's right. Some of whose members are now under a very big, embarrassing gun of a charge brought by a woman. Just let me finish here. There, I guarantee you there's nobody in this audience that's going to that's gonna drop over of indignation to discover that pot smoking may have taken place. That throughout the 70s and 80s, especially when the money started rolling in, cocaine started to take place. No doubt about that. And I guarantee you, this bright audience knows damn well that steroids were used. This is easy to get. We know this. Okay. Now, wait a minute. Here's the question. Here's the question. Did the WWF or did the environment or did people in power not only look the other way, but actually condone the loss of jobs, the loss of employment? Because of bold, bold, unrestrained aggression of a sexual nature by men in power on younger men who wanted to uh, rise within the system. Absolutely That's not. the question. Can I answer that question, Phil? Sure. Uh, last night on my radio program, I had two midget wrestlers on. and uh, We don't see them anymore, do we? No, we don't. We don't see them anymore. Why. Last night on my show, a midget wrestler by the name of uh, Karate Kid alleged that in a dressing room, Pat Patterson made some sexual advances towards him. Uh, the leader of the midget group, Lord Littlebrook, uh, went to Pat... No, it's, it sounds bizarre, and it is bizarre, but it's sad. Make the uh, story, please. Running out of time. Yes, okay. Lord Littlebrook went to Pat Patterson and said, Leave this kid alone. He's not gay. He scared the little guy, to, you know, to tears. Uh, they were not used, but one time after that, after that sexual advance was... Uh, Denied. Denied. They were only used one more time, and the midgets right. have not been used since then. Okay, I believe John. First of all, I, I think John should not should not have mentioned that they were midgets. I mean, the average person listening to this is, you know, thinking this whole business is. In, in, I mean, uh, comes from LSD for God's sake. It, it was just crazy. I really do believe that they stopped using the midgets. For, for the right for, now, I want to say the right reasons, but it had nothing to do with Patterson. Yeah, I think at a certain point in time, um, they were typically in in markets a once every six months or a once a year thing. It, yeah, they, they weren't they weren't on every card at Madison Square Garden, Boston Garden, that sort of thing. But they were there. But once those matches were on TV, whether it was prime time or or TNT or whatever, it, it lost that value, that novelty value. So I think that wore off and there was just no need for him, you know, in that, in that capacity. I will say <laughs> I scoured as this was going on the history of the WWE. Cause I was dying to find out who Bruno actually replaced, but I couldn't find it in time. Jake Roberts in, uh, in Arizona. It was Jake Roberts. Okay. I, I, was, I did not know. Was that in 87 when he got his neck jammed or when was that? It was in 87 when Jake flunked a drug test and Bruno was brought in to replace him. It wasn't that he was Jake was too coked up to or too messed up to perform or whatever Bruno said. Jake was suspended and Bruno was brought in as a substitute. But, but it does make sense because Bruno at the time, I believe, even when he came back, from, even when he was wrestling back in 80 and 81 with the territory, he never really jumped further than. And out a, a night drive from Pittsburgh is home. Like he didn't, 
he might go to New York. He might go to Baltimore. He might go to uh, Philadelphia. He never really went to Boston very much after about 80 or 81. He did that run with Piper, but after that, he really kind of stayed, you know, drive, be home at night sort of thing. And, and that was probably a condition. And I'm sure there was some kind of deal made where he can kind of pick and choose his spots when it brought David in, but I don't know. No, Bruno actually wrestled in Boston, relatively speaking, a lot. He was over like crazy in Boston. But yeah, after even after he lost the belt to superstar Billy Graham, I did some research and I was really surprised how little he wrestled. We we talked about this on the show about three months ago, but you know, I was thinking Bruno was at least part time in like eighty five, eighty six. He wasn't. He was was barely wrestling. Now, Dave was talking about Bruiser Brody being killed in Puerto Rico. And even before the shoot interview started coming out, I was hearing from people that, look, you know, it it sucks that wrestler X didn't testify or just went home. But I mean, you're in Puerto Rico and Carlos Colon is like, I I don't know. He, he has a lot of influence and you just didn't want to cross the guy. And I can understand that. Look, you know, you, you want to testify for Bruiser Brody, but you also don't want to get killed. Exactly. I mean, and remember the Dark Side of the Ring episode that I believe uh, Dutch Van Tail, Tony Atlas were there. Oh, that's right. I watched yeah. that. The thing about it, too, is like, yeah, you want to tell the authorities the truth, but you also want to make sure you're on the next plane out when you do it, because there's no guarantee. If they're going to kill a guy in cold blood in an arena, then then what bets are off? So it, it, Exactly. I, I don't, I don't, and, and there's a part of me that I think and I'm not saying this is true. I have no inherent knowledge of it. But there's a party that thinks those guys might have known when that trial was going to be, and they just kind of said, eh, I never got the notice. There's part of me that thinks that, too. Again, you're, you're entering very dangerous territory. You're leaving the United States, and you're, you know, you're just in that world that Cologne, I don't want to say controls, but has a lot of influence over. And you just, you know, we all have that sense of self-preservation. One last thing, Bruno San Martino has come out. He's, you know, talking, obviously not very happy with Vince McMahon. Supposedly Bruno said he wanted to be seated far away from McMahon because if McMahon was sitting next to him, Bruno would have gone after him physically. There, there was a lot of resentment there. And a part of me understands how Bruno said when he left in 81 and came back in 85, it was a totally different sport. But it, it wasn't as they were having hamburgers and milkshakes in the back of MMSG in 1979. They, there, there was still that stuff going on, but it was the wide, more or less thing, the widespread use of steroids it was the biggest difference from 79, 80, 81 to 85, 86, 87. There were guys using them in the late 70s, absolutely. But was everyone using them? No, I mean, you can kind of look at, on the archives from WWE and see, you know, who probably was doing that. But the other thing about that was too, I thought, and again, next to Hodgson, of course, that Bruno was the one that had, well, besides Meltzer and Arezzi as well, but of the, the wrestling panel of X stars, Bruno had the most credibility. I think, I think Bruno, while he was, while his methods of being there and his motives may have been questionable, because he was there because he hated Vince. He didn't really have any skin in the game, so to speak, in terms of any of this, but he hated Vince, and I think he wanted any opportunity to, to drag him in the mud. That's the only part about it where Bruno 
has a little bit of a side eye glance, but I think everything Bruno said was spot on. I agree, and I also believe Bruno when he said that, you know, I, I know, sure, some stuff was going on in, you know, 1979, 1980, come on, it's America, but I do believe him when he said it, it, that the the situation with drugs and the guys using them had really amplified between, like he said, you know, when he left in 81 versus when he came back in 1985. I, I do believe that. But But how much, too, when Bruno was there, you know, post the title run from, so from, you know, 79 to 81, when he was there, he still was, you know, pretty high up on the, high up on the card. Obviously he had a sweetheart deal from Vince senior to the point where I can imagine a lot of guys probably saw him as, you know, a potential stooge in the office. So were they doing things behind his back, behind closed doors? And then when he came back in 85, 86, he was just another guy, so to speak. So they, they were more apt to do it in front of them. They didn't care. No, that, that makes sense, especially if everyone else is just, you know, high all day as a lot of guys were back then. Then I, I think it makes it a lot easier. All right, let's hear the rest of the Phil Donahue show from 1992. Been used since then. Vince McMahon. Here is the owner of the World uh, Wrestling Federation. Uh... And uh, he's already lost how many? Two or three executives have resigned. Two executives and one. Two executives and one announcer. One, other, one announcer. Yeah. Yes. Who worked right under him. What did Mr. McMahon know and when did he know it? And is it unfair to have asked him to give these guys the heave-hole given the complexity of these charges? Who's got the evidence? Who's going to believe who? Did he fire this announcer? This is, this is, if it weren't so painful, it would be fascinating. We've got the boss saying to the secretary who accuses him of a sexual abuse, I fired her because she couldn't type. Maybe she couldn't type. What is the truth? We'll be back to explore it further in just a moment. just uh, some scenes from what it is that is uh, mesmerizing uh, millions of Americans, a lot of them young people. Uh, these, uh, these pros in the wrestling game will tell you a lot of the folks screaming the loudest in the audience are young people, uh, males and females. Uh, Dave, uh, you're editor of the Wrestling Observer. Do you see Mr. McMahon coming, uh, coming forward here to uh, open the door, at least, to the possibility here? Are you impressed with what he has said here in the first part of our program? It, it, it surprises me, and I'm, I'm glad he said it. because um, You're glad he said what? I'm glad he admitted that there was a possibility, because none of us know for sure. Maybe, maybe Barry does, okay? Um, and uh, Murray and Tom, okay? I don't know for sure. It's one person's word against another. And maybe if the executives told Vince that... This didn't happen. Maybe they were telling the truth, and maybe they're not. I can't tell you for sure, although I will say this. I do believe Barry's story. Um, he took a polygraph, and I've spent a lot of time discussing it with him, and I think that I'm pretty decent at uh, talking to wrestlers and, and separating the fact from the fiction, and I believe Barry's story. Some of the, take the time to Barry, please, sir. To say that the big, what the big story really was was not was not really the story where I sat between uh, Pat Patterson and Terry Garvin, but... Shortly thereafter, there was another instance, and I remember I'm 19 years old, and I drove from Amarillo to Albuquerque, New Mexico, with a single passenger being Terry Garvin, who about 40 miles outside of town 
started uh, proposing that he perform oral sex on me while I was driving, begging me to let me to let him do so. And of course, because I was young, I didn't want to lose a position or a shot. And I don't have homophobia. I have no problem with, you know, I'm, I'm a First Amendment person. I believe everyone has a right to do whatever they want to do. Right. Uh, and, and, and I told him as nicely as I could, please don't be offended, but that's not, you know, what I'm into and, and nothing personal. And, you know, I'm still your friend, but no thanks. And he did this. Uh, every 40 or 50 miles, he would start again, and, he, and, and, and it got harder and harder to talk about. That happened, and that's horrible, but that happened. Well, let him finish his point. And your like point, Barry, is... My point is, is that uh, Dave, Dave Meltzer just said, I have taken a polygraph about all this right. stuff and, and but, came back totally clean. My point is, is that if he was attracted to young men... And, and, and younger, because I even heard the stories of the uh, kids underage back then. His behavior then, towards you makes him makes you wonder about how he may behave toward others. Is this the point? Yeah, even and now. And you also I mean, want to know what? I mean, we, you know, you can't, we're not, you don't want to get the posse and the rope and the tree limb for Vince on this, something. do you? No, I don't. I, I don't want to get the posse and the rope for Vince. However... This has been going on in the dressing room in the WWF, with, and I'm talking, you know, under, under uh, Title VII of the Code and uh, the law, it says that any unwelcome sexual advances, touching, or anything else is sexual harassment. Right. Now, we have these guys who are bookers and top executives, and believe me, I'm out of here before they are. I know I can't go and complain. I'm sorry. Now, you can say whatever you want to say, and you know no. that to be true. They have the power. No matter what you say, you're going to be dismissed. I'm gone because, because oh. they are more important yes. than I am. Like Dave Meltzer, I believe everything that Barry Orton is saying. Um, I mean, he had no reason to lie. He, you know, it, this is kind of how it all got started. Barry just started telling the story about what went on uh, with Patterson and Garvin one night. I think it was Patterson and Garvin. And then Terry Garvin for eight hours begging him <laughs> to perform oral sex on him. My God. Um and Donahue, you know, kind of put it all together. He did a good job with that. It's like, hey, if he was doing this in 1978, what's going to stop him from doing it now? And especially if Terry Garvin's in a position of power. Riding in a car with a wrestler, you know, it's just the, the two of you. Yeah, he has a little more cachet because he's a veteran. But now if Terry Garvin is working in the office of the biggest wrestling organization in the world, then he's going to have, you know, predatory behaviors I can't help but imagine. And Vince brings up that independent investigator coming in. And I think all of that combined is why Pat Patterson came back and Terry Garvin never did. Yeah. And plus Pat Patterson, I mean, just had a, a lot more, I mean, there there was a lot of question at the time, whether or not Pat Patterson actually left and Patterson just had a, um, had more to offer the company, quite frankly. You know, I want to take everyone back. Right before this, I would say fall of 1991, Thomas, I don't know if you remember this, the Clarence Thomas hearing. Clarence Thomas was trying to get cleared to be a Supreme Court justice, and a woman named Anita Hill came out and said, hey, this guy would sexually harass me. And it really changed the entire uh, culture in, in America because it, we started taking that seriously. In the 80s, it was, you know... <laughs> It was like an episode of Mad Men at work when it came to sexual harassment, and that changed the game, and the game had just changed. I think you get the nail right on the head because I think of the entire you know workplace history up until 1991, and, and that's actually – and one of the things I remember about the Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas hearings was 
shortly thereafter, if you remember, there were a lot of PSAs being done for the next year or two regarding sexual harassment television in the workplace. They came on about two or three years. Almost every commercial break would have one throughout the, you know, basically informing, you know, why it's not okay, what a woman's rights are, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it really turned this whole culture on its ear. And I can't help but imagine where we'd be right now as a society if, if that, that trial didn't come into play. That's an excellent point. And like I said, everyone's behavior changed. No, John, you can't just walk up to any girl you want to and put your arm around her, which I would do on occasion because it was considered okay. And I get that. I get that now that it wasn't okay. It not only is it not okay then, now it wasn't okay then. So I'm I'm sorry, but I wasn't I wasn't the only one doing it. I that was learned behavior. Anyway, my take on this is that I can't prove this, obviously. But I think McMahon knew everything. He either knew everything or 99% of it. And I don't know. I think it's a little, I know he has to go out there and deny everything. And, you know, I'm here to listen. But, you know, I think McMahon's full of it, quite frankly. Of course. I can't help. But when the, especially how close Vince and Pat were, when Vince asked Pat about this, I can't imagine. He didn't say, okay, Pat, what's going on here? What's going on with Terry Garvin? And Pat had to know if he outright lies about Terry Garvin being innocent on this, then Pat's probably talking himself out of a job. So I'm sure that Pat probably said, well, listen, Terry does. Terry, you know, says these things. Terry does that. And, you know, and Pat may have embellished or, you know, told the truth on what he actually did or said or anything like that. But I'm sure Vince coming into this show, coming into Larry King, coming into Nightline, he knew what the score was. He just had to know what could be proven and what couldn't be proven. That sounds right to me. And like, I I mean, I remember in like 87, 88, you know, me and my friends would get together for a wrestling thing in Philadelphia or whatever. and, And we would be making jokes about this because we knew what was going on. So how could Vince McMahon not? Anyway, let's continue listening to the Phil Donahue show from 1992. Yeah, you wanted to say, Bruno, very briefly, with all kinds okay. of folks in this audience who haven't even had a chance, they're okay. coming after me here. McMahon, I'm going to need you in just a minute. McMahon, McMahon said, why didn't they go to the authorities? What you folks don't know is that you don't go to the authorities if you want to eat because you're merely dead. You're finished, kaput, blackball. His father blackballed me all over the country, not for this, for some other issue. Well, okay. let's not they, bring in that. No, right. I won't. I won't. I'm, I'm sure just talking a... about that. There's no union. Right. There's no protection for the wrestler. Very you good. speak up, you're okay. dead. Vince McMahon, here's the charge. You had to see this. Your agents, right under, your, uh, right under you on the organization chart, are accused. Two of them have resigned, including an announcer. Where were you all these years? Was the money so good? Was the glamour so great? Was the business exploding so wonderfully that you didn't have time to get into uh, this kind of thing and you looked the other way and allowed it to happen? That seems to be the way, uh, the way this charge is evolving against you. Well, I certainly didn't look the other way. There was no reason for me to look the other way and risk everything that we have going on. You didn't know any Barry... of this was going on, Mr. McMahon? No, I did not. What Barry is making reference to is an act some 14 years ago. 14 years ago that happened. How am I supposed I don't know that that happened. Yeah. This is the first time hearing of it, it on, the, on the show the other time. day. Yeah. Do you believe it? It could very well have happened. And to that extent, if in fact it did happen, again, those individuals whom these allegations are being brought against 
are no longer with me. I don't know what else more I can do other than to garner as much information as I possibly can to see that yeah. if, in fact, some of this was going on, that it doesn't happen again. You know, uh, we're always going to have wrestling. The question is, how threatened now is this empire with the accusations of steroid abuse and now a gay sexual harassment? Because if it isn't, if you don't convince, obviously this is, uh, I'm not suggesting I'm telling you something you already don't know, don't know if you don't fix this you're not gonna be able to give these tickets away no question about it and we'll be back in a moment you know vince is talking about or excuse me donahue had talked about vince's empire being threatened and not being able to give away tickets if this blows up i mean i knew people who told their kids to stop watching wrestling over this i mean people took it very seriously you know, pro wrestling. Oh, it's that place where this stuff always goes on, and it, it, it was real. For me at the time, I, you know, being a kid at the time of this, that this is right smack. Um, the these scandals, the steroids, steroid trials, Vince McMahon, everything else. I don't think, as far as I know, that any of my uh, friends, you know, were were dissuaded by their parents to watch wrestling. It almost became just, a, you know, once kids get older and the, and the product, you know, shifts one way. and it, It's always geared towards the next generation. And it phases one group out and then one group comes in and some, peop, some stragglers stay on, you know, for the rest of their life. And that's how you build the fan base. But really, as a kid, all of this stuff was just you know, essentially over my head in the fact that it wasn't going to stop me from watching wrestling. I, I would watch anything I can get my, you know, get my eyes on. So I, I can't say that it damaged the product. I think the steroid trial damaged the product in the sense that Vince had to transition money away from the product, to, you know, to defend his name and reputation in his company. But I don't know if on the whole, these scandals, you know, hurt the business necessarily. I think they did. I think the WWF in 1992 I know it was already in a big decline, but by summer of 1992, I know their ratings were way down. Their attendance was way down. Their pay-per-view buy rates were way down. And as a result of the, the steroid uh, scandal and the new testing procedures, I mean, you had guys like Randy Savage and I, I mean, Ultimate Warrior on TV wrestling, in, hiding their physiques. And a lot of the people who watch wrestling they watched it, you know, in part at least to see those physiques, and now they were gone, and fans were were running away from this. And, and see, I don't know if it was the physique thing, but it's almost more the product thing, though, because in '92 Hogan was going out, in '91 Warrior was fired, and they did a horrible job building the next crop of stars. They just, you know, I guess Vince just thought, okay, I'll get once Hogan leaves, if he ever does, then I still have Warrior. And then it was just the, they put the belt hastily on Bret Hart. They had Savage. They had Flair. And they, and they really didn't build that next group of stars for the mid-90s until they had to almost kind of fly. And I know the Intercontinental title is the workers' belt and things like that, but build the program, the, the, the TV shows. The TV shows were built around Hulk Hogan or The Ultimate Warrior and where their next house show is going to be, where the next pay-per-view feud is going to be. And all of a sudden now it's, it's – Bret Hart and Razor Ramon headlining a Royal Rumble pay-per-view. All of a sudden, it's a, a tag team match at the Survivor Series with, with Razor Ramon, Ric Flair, 
uh, Savage and uh, Kurt Henning. It, it really, it wasn't there. And a lot of these WWF fans, as much as, as popular as Ric Flair was, a lot of, and not, I'm not saying a majority, but a lot of them just saw Ric Flair as another guy. A, a, a top guy and a, and a great worker, but he wasn't Ric Flair when he came in there, if that makes sense. It, it does make sense. You know, um, I'm always a big believer that wrestling fans watch whatever wrestling programs are on TV. The one exception, I'll bet not every WWF fan watched WCW. So that means when Ric Flair comes in, they don't know who he is. He's this guy, looks like in his late 30s, early 40s, who doesn't have that blown up physique. And you are 100% correct that, you know, they they never succeeded in building up that replacement for Hogan. I, I know they they tried a couple of different guys and it just never got off the ground. They, you know, when Hogan was gone, there was definitely a void in that company. And, and I think really that slide would have continued all the way, you know, into 2000. Cause I don't know if there is a, a set of breaks on this slide. If the Hulk Hogan and the NWO isn't formulated, I think it just slowly deteriorates and spins down the drain because there wasn't that, I mean, look, look what they did with Steve Austin. Look what they did with, you know, Rocky Maivia. They really had an idea where they were going with this. And they needed new blood in there, in the ring and in creative. And I don't know if they were going to get that with guys like Jim Cornette and Jim Ross, you know, being the, the bookers right there. I don't think you, you, they were edgy in that regard. Thomas, excellent points as usual. And we will continue listening to the Phil Donahue Show from 1992. Uh-huh. People Magazine is uh, out with a page, on, uh, a, a piece on the Incredible Hulk, Hulk Hogan. Y- you, you, are you acknowledging here that, uh, Billy, that you, uh, you actually introduced young wrestlers to steroids? I'm acknowledging that Hulk Hogan came to me in 1977 in Tampa, Florida, and, and, and inquired about steroids. Right. Because he wanted to be a wrestler. You and know, I, I want to tell you him, what. I, I don't, want, him him I don't want to send him to jail for that. No, no, I'm not. 1977, no, no, that's, that's how you did it. I and we didn't know. Him. All right. I freely but gave you, him you, you look back on it and you say, holy cow, that no, was wrong. But the point is, I freely gave the man that information in 1977. But the fact of the matter is, now he has gone on the Arsenio Hall show and lied to a national, a national audience that he has never taken steroids except for three occasions, and those three occasions being for therapeutic use only for a torn bicep. I've injected the man myself probably a half a dozen times. David Schultz, a close friend of mine, has injected him over 200 times, and Hulk Hogan himself has told me personally, Superstar, I knew nothing about steroids when I began. But why? And for the first year, I took a shot every day of my life, every day for the the first year until I learned how to cycle steroids. But my point is... My point is, Phil, Billy, you're you claiming a very big income here but with you this can't, That's right, but you, you can't lie to children in this country about drugs. That's child abuse. When you get on television and you say you have never taken steroids and you've done it for the whole 10 years, and, 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 when, you, and when you've taken steroids for the decade of the 80s, and when you've taken cocaine and other drugs, and you, and, and you lie about this to children, that is child yeah, molestation gotcha. of their minds. Gotcha. You can't lie to kids about John drugs. John Arezzi, yeah. you want to say, sir. Okay, I'm not sure if that's child molestation. Oh my God. One thing I wanted to talk about, Thomas, Hulk Hogan appeared on Arsenio Hall and he went out there and just lied his ass off. I don't know what else he was supposed to do, but he he did that. And in the days after that, 
I kept hearing from people that would know that this was going to get Hogan into a lot of hot water, and it did. When I, when I first saw it, I'm like, yeah, well, he lied, and that'll be the end of it. And it certainly was not the end of it. No, this was really, with Hogan doing that, and the fact of the matter is, this is, again, a, a faux pas on the WWF. Because Hogan being asked these questions is a byproduct of George the Harriet being, being indicted and charged and sent later on sentenced. Anybody with any inkling or any smoke to them in terms of steroids should have been kept off the talk show circuit until this all blowed over. And then it would become a, you know, if they waited a, you know, six months, nine months, whatever it was, this could have all blown over. But instead, they wanted to do damage control. They had a good relationship with the Arsenio Hall show. I believe Hogan, Savage, a lot of other guys were on the show at certain points in time. I don't know why they would push Hogan on there, knowing that Arsenio has to ask him that. And what's he do then? Either he owns up to it, and we watch all this money go down the drain in terms of marketability, or he lies and guys call him out on it. It's an absolute lose-lose for Hulk Hogan and the WWF. Yeah, I, we see that now, and I, I didn't see it at the time, but you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, Hogan thought he was just going to go out there you know, lie as he always did, and that would be the end of it. And like I said, as soon as that happened, you know, people started saying, oh, oh no, this is going to be a problem for the WWF. And yeah, they, WWF had a good relationship with the Arsenio Hall show to the point where they had a match on the show. I know it was the Nasty Boys. I think it was against the Bushwhackers, but I could be wrong on the second part. Yeah, I believe, I believe it was leading up into the... I want to say the 91 Survivor Series, or it could have been SummerSlam. I'm not quite sure on that. But yeah, they, it wasn't just Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior. They had like Bad News Brown on the show at one point in time. You know, that show was maybe hard up for guests early on, and the WWF was just more than willing to put their people on that program. The WWF guests, from what I understand, drew great ratings. And if you want to be entertained, Go to YouTube, and it's probably on there. Put on Ted DiBiase, Arsenio Hall Show. It was like 10 minutes of nonstop hilarity. All right, let's go back and listen to the rest of the Phil Donahue Show from 1992. Gotcha. You can't lie to kids about John Arezzi, yes. you wanted to say, sir. Didn't Vince say uh, on in published reports that you were devastated when Hulk Hogan made those statements on Arsenio? I wasn't devastated. That was the word you used to me. It was Well, all right. <laughs> It was in the I, don't recall, I don't recall using the word devastated. Uh, Hulk Hogan, I think, told the truth. The question is, as far as the media is concerned, is whether or not he told I don't the whole told, truth. I don't believe the, I don't believe the truth. And, and let me just say this. Three first, times is not the truth. Okay, first of all, let me say this. That as you readily would recognize, Superstar, as you started this whole steroid phenomenon in undoubtedly professional wrestling, it seems to me that we're losing sight of the fact that steroids were legal at the time. I mean, it was not, just as not, legal. Not, not, not in not some legal. states they were, and they were not legal in Florida. Okay, federal, well, fine. But I, you federal, know, they, they were legal in Florida. The they, issue Florida is, and you can't ask me. They're not legal now. You lie to okay. children. Right. 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 That's why we insisted okay. yeah. our steroid If you ask me, and nobody has, <laughs> I don't want. I don't want to string up a guy who took these uh, this uh, football, wrestling, whatever. 
in the 70s or 80s before the sunshine started to come down on us about the terrible side effects of this drug. We need side your, your point about the, your accusation that he lied is a different hello. Hi, to the three men on the end yes. who lost their jobs, yeah. how many people in the World Wrestling Federation today are performing sexual favors to keep their jobs? Well, today, uh, I would have to say I don't know because the two main culprits, I guess, have resigned and stepped down. When, when, you, were, when you were working there, percentage-wise? Uh, well, percentage-wise, I, really, I can't really say, like, you know, 30%, 50%. I know of, of, of at least one person right. that was there from beginning to end. If you were not... Hi, are you there? Call her briefly, you had to say. Yes, I have a question for Mr. McMahon concerning all those executives resigning. Yes. Don't you find it strange that all those accused have resigned? Why did you accept their resignations? And wasn't indeed Mel Phillips suspended? Yes, you have one individual who's suspended who was not uh, technically an employee, although he worked with us uh, almost every day. And you have uh, two executives who have resigned and we've accepted their resignation. Yeah. You talk about child abuse, but if you saw or had knowledge of a child... A young person. Could have blown the whistle right away. Yeah, I guess. Right. Yeah. Okay, I've got to understand something. You have to understand the wrestling. Part. By coming forward right now, I'm done, man. I'll never wrestle ever, ever again under any circumstances. I am done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, when you lie to children, that is, that is child abuse. That's, that was my point. I didn't well, Bruno, you wanted to say. I wanted to tell that young lady, please, they were reported. We told you the parking lot no, incident. When it was reported to them, they said, well, what they do in their own time. They, they didn't care. Don't Over you understand here. that? Over they here. didn't yeah. care. Um, first of all, I think that it's a shame that seven other people on the, six other people on the panel, with the exception of Mr. Meltzer, are sitting there accusing Mr. McMahon, who so far has done nothing wrong. Mr. O, I know you've been in jail. Mr. San Martino, you're so disfired under very suspicious circumstances. How can you <laughs> sit here no and accuse Mr. McMahon out of personal vendettas? Yeah. None of that has any You don't know what you're talking about, Sonny. When you grow up, maybe you'll understand a little bit. Yeah. I'm just wondering why people go into wrestling in the first place. Money. I mean, they know it's not a pure art form. Even just looking at wrestling, you can see that it's tacky and it looks... I got a break. Are you there, caller? I can't talk to you. Well, <laughs> hang on, maybe I'll get you in. We'll be back in a moment. Okay, obviously this show has gone completely off the rails. Not stick to wrestling, of course, but the Donahue show, we've got everyone screaming over each other. Phil can't control it. He's taking phone calls in the middle of all of it. The one thing I wanted to say, I, first of all, I thought it was really funny that Vince McMahon says, I did not use the word devastated. And, and Dave just chirps in with like, yeah, that's the word you use with me. <laughs> Which really, uh, it's really one of the, the unkept secret that really have never been kind of delved upon as to what Dave's relationship really was with the WWF when he worked for them. I'm guessing he was just kind of a, sounding board i don't I, well what was dave Meltzer's relationship with vince mcmahon working well, relationship, i should say when he worked for them briefly and what he did was he would speak with i believe jj dylan at one point and dave would let them know what was going on in japan that was it that was all it was 
That was all it was, according to Dave, at least. And he said it didn't last long. And, and that seems kind of interesting with that, especially especially considering the fact that I believe that every day coming into the office, Howard Finkel would either read the Observer and give the updates or call the WCW hotline or just trying to get the inside information on everything. You would think if you had Dave Meltzer at your disposal, you would just try to get as much info that he wasn't able to even print yet in order to kind of get a leg up. But who knows? What I said was a little bit off, by the way. He did not speak to J.J. Dillon about Japan. I don't know who he spoke to about Japan. Uh, this is 84, but it's like basically whoever he spoke to would, would ask Dave questions about, you know, what was going on there, what was getting over, what wrestlers were getting over. J.J. Dillon would call, this is when Dave was no longer working for them, would basically be Dave's pipeline into the WWF where if Dave had any questions, you know, about what was going on, he would speak to J.J. Dillon. This is like 89-90, so sorry for screwing that up. I mean, one thing, too, that I want to mention, in my opinion, and I'm not a doctor, but, you know, Phil Donahue says, oh, and this, we finally start getting sunlight on steroids and how terrible they are. I mean, look, I, I just think that the media, especially around this time, uh, was greatly, greatly overrating their negative effects. I mean, if, if you use them the way they're, they were supposed to be used when they were legal, you were going to be fine. And I think what caused that originally was a lot of bodybuilders who didn't have the body capacity to hold 330 pounds of solid muscle were dying prematurely of heart attacks, but especially when Lyle Zato died and he, you know, made it a point to blame steroids for his, you know, cancer diagnosis and, you know, ultimate uh, early death. And that sort of became the rallying cry as to why steroids are bad. If you go back to the you know, early mid eighties and you would see Hulk Hogan, or you would see, you know, an NFL player that was totally jacked. You, you would casually say, Oh, that person is on steroids, but there would, once you got to the nineties and you said the same thing, there'd be that level of contempt in your voice. You go, oh, that person's on steroids. And, and, that, and that's where it kind of came in. And not until later in the decade and really into the, the next century of baseball is when we kind of stopped or at least kind of accepted what people are doing with steroids and how it's really not going to put you into an early grave unless you're genetically predisposed. Ding, ding, ding. If you're not genetically predisposed and if you're not completely abusing them, there's not a lot of information long-term saying it's going to completely harm you. Let's just say that I don't believe uh, Lyle Alzado. I have heard conflicting uh, accounts of what Lyle Alzado actually died from, and I have never heard that steroids give you cancer. But I will say that that was a really big story in the late 80s when when Lyle Alzado was running around saying that, you know, I took steroids and I got cancer. So that, you know, let's put these two together. That, that, that's just not how it works. But anyway, I, it feels like this show, the Donahue show is, is coming to a close. Let's listen to the rest of that. Yeah, I, I just like to ask one question to the wrestlers that have been in the business for a long time. Um, how many are there percentage homosexuals in uh, oh, wrestling? Nobody business? knows that. How many homosexuals in your neighborhood? Report back to us on that. What did you want to 
say, yes, yes. It's a that's isn't wrestling fixed wrestling. anyway? That's not a real issue to any of this. No, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a creative decision. Who wins? You know, the snake loses, the good guy wins. This is about crime. This is about breaking the law. Yeah, what is it? Tell them about it. Uh, you said over here that uh, if you blow the whistle on sexual harassment that your career is over your blackboard. I just want to know, is your career worth the price of these 10 and 13-year-old boys getting Absolutely harassed? That was an interesting show, to say the least. And in 1992, I mean, a lot of people did not, I mean, practically nobody knew about the underbelly of wrestling. It was a little bit like the way Hollywood used to be. I mean, you know, if if a girl wanted to be a, a big time movie star, she slept with a lot of producers. That's just the way it was. And wrestling had an element of that. And that's what Donahue um, first kicked off the show with comparing to the Hollywood casting couch. And when you put it in that perspective, especially with, you know, by and large people considering the WWF, the only game in town, it's kind of like, you know, back in the early nineties. And even now, you know, you would talk to me, he's not a wrestling fan going, Oh, are you going to watch WWF? Meaning any kind of wrestling was WWF in their mind, because what else was there? And, to paint it with that broad of a stroke, when you make these allegations to the person who's watching this show, thinks, well, it makes sense because in order to get to the only game in town, so to speak, you probably got to do these sorts of things in order to, to get ahead of the thousands upon thousands of people that are trying to become professional wrestlers. Because once Phil Donnie said $1.7 billion, that seems like anybody's going to try to jump into that field. So there's some exaggeration there, sure, but that's the whole point of a television show to try to, you know, make the viewer believe that everything, you know, there is a casting couch. The WWF does earn nearly $2 billion annually. It's all just something just to kind of keep the person, you know, glued to the set and not flip it on the first commercial. Cause again, like we said, the average person watching this show probably wasn't a wrestling fan. So what purpose did they have to watch this beyond the first five minutes? Unless it does get a little more salacious. I can totally see that. They want to hook people into listening or watching the rest of the show. You know, Barry Orton, he was saying that, you know, if you came forward with these allegations, you were done. And I believe him. Like, I thought Barry Orton was a really talented guy. He was the Zodiac up in Calgary in 1987. And this gimmick, you know, looked like it was going to go places. And I really believe had Barry Orton flipped on Vince McMahon in 1986 or 1987, he would have been effectively blackballed. Like even you know, JCP, I don't think they would have used him. I think, you know, this is the guy who they would have looked at it. Not he blew the whistle on Vince McMahon. He blew the whistle on the entire wrestling industry. I really believe that's the way they would have looked at it. I agree with you. It's not so much that he, again, blew the whistle on Vince McMahon, but it becomes, okay, what can we trust him with in this organization? And if there are guys that are on drugs, guys doing that, you know, if you wanted to kick out every wrestler who was taking drugs, you know, whether they were marijuana, cocaine, or steroids, you could fill out an entire super show on a bar napkin at that <laughs> point in time. So what, so what happens there it ultimately becomes for the greater good of the sport these promoters were decided, okay, well, Barry Orton, you know, he's not going to fit here because the, the boys can't trust him. 
Well put. I mean, a lot of what was going on in the WWF was going on in other organizations, probably not to the extent that it was going on in the WWF, but it was going on. And you're right, you know, the way Dave Meltzer put it exactly, you know, it was like an elementary school recess. You do not tell. And that's just the way it was. Well, yeah, because one thing you learn about as you, you know, become a smarter wrestling fan is if you're in the business, there's no one looking out for you. So if you are going to speak out on something, if you're going to put your foot down on uh, an improper business practice taking place, you're essentially becoming a martyr because no one's going to have your back because they're going to take the guys below you want to take your spot. And the guys that are above you don't want to speak out for fear of losing their own spot. That's correct. And look back to Eddie Mansfield. I mean, he had been out of the business for a long time, but I mean, he wasn't coming back. I don't think anyone uh, should have hired Jim Wilson uh, in the first place, but you know, he certainly didn't get work after he appeared on 2020. And even really to this point, I mean, now wrestling's a little bit different, but I think that same mantra would have gone all the way in, into the millennium, I think. It's not as if this practice or this mindset would have changed in the mid-90s or the late-90s. And dare I say it, if someone spoke out on the sport now, even now, I mean, it would be hard for me to see someone, you know, kind of make these allegations about something and then having a landing spot somewhere. I agree, although I will give the wrestling business in general the credit for cleaning itself up. I think once when Eddie Guerrero died, that was a big deal. But when the Chris Benoit thing happened, I mean, the WWF, it it felt to me like they said, "Okay, we're never letting this happen again, ever. And it hasn't happened. I give them credit. Well, is that more of a situation where the wwe is a publicly traded company now and they have their fingers in a lot of pies and this kind of thing's bad for business across the board as opposed to we are making an effort to clean things up i think it's a little bit of both obviously i i don't I'll put it this way i don't think they have the wrestlers best interest at heart they have their own best interests at heart that we're not letting another Eddie Guerrero or another Chris Benoit happen. You know, you are going to take place in a a wellness program. We are going to test you for a lot of stuff. You know, we're not going to have the 80s lifestyle and the early 90s lifestyle that that the wrestlers used to have. We're not doing it anymore. And, And I think at this point in time as well, especially when, when Guerrero and Benoit passed away, TNA was a, a non-entity in the sport of wrestling. And if someone died in wrestling, they were going to have the name WWE attached to them if they were in the news. That's the whole point of that. It wasn't going to be X-so-and-so. Or, no, everything was tied to w- At that point in time, once WCW folded, every single person who would make the news for some kind of thing would be tied to the WWE. And when that comes in and you have that bad publicity, it takes a lot more effort to, da- you know, to correct that via damage control than it would be to stop it altogether. I mean, I remember when Opie and Anthony had a big scandal and somehow Howard Stern's picture was the one in the paper. And that's just the way it goes. But Thomas, it has been a great two episodes. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. 
as always, the pleasure is always mine, John. Thank you very much for having me. Well, you're very welcome, and we'll have you back again soon. I want to thank everyone for listening and tune in again next week. I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, for all the great work he does. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go Vols! This concludes our podcast day. Thank you.